Hello everyone, this is Anita from Happiness Factors, the mental wellness bridge between holistic best of East and West and technology. And today I'm so excited to introduce you to the one and only Jeremy Utley. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right. You're doing great. It's Utley, Utley. Utley, okay. Jeremy Utley. He's the director of executive education at Stanford, as well as a professor of, at the design school. And he's also the co-host of Masters of Creativity and co-author of the soon to be released book, Idea Flow, which I feel that every company and every team should read in order to get more successful and get more creative. And every time I hear Jeremy speak either on uh, some event or even on his YouTube channel, I get so many new ideas. So I will definitely encourage you to subscribe to his channel as well. And without much further ado, welcome Jeremy, and I would let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, thank you, Anita. It's a delight to be here. I'm so privileged to get to speak with you. And yeah, I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm running executive programs at the Stanford D School. I'm privileged to, to co-host the wonderful Masters of Creativity. I feel like I'm a front row student in the coolest classroom in the world there. And I have co-written this book with my partner, Perry Claybon. He and I uh, have written really a, a synthesis of our experiences running executive programs and capability building programs and organizations for the last 12 years. And our observation is that innovation has reached a level of hype that's very high. And yet, paradoxically, it remains one of the least developed capabilities in most organizations and most individuals. So for us, our ambition is to set the record straight on some of the myths around creativity and innovation and give people a really robust practice that they can engage to routinely innovate in their life and in their work. Oh, that would be so amazing. I remember, especially in the corporate world, like one of my VPs was so much into innovation, like we created so many new programs so that people can uh, get more innovative and file new patents and also award people who just file even if it doesn't get approved. Mm -hmm. to more people. So I'm so excited about it. And That's I think great. creativity and innovation is the way to go, right? Otherwise, we won't be on a Zoom call right now if there was no innovation. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and it's really the lifeblood of every organization, right? And if you, wherever creativity ceases, wherever innovation ceases, your organization is soon to follow, right? Creativity is what we say, it's the fountain of youth for organizations. And if organizations want to stay young and vital and relevant, they have to remain creative and they have to attend to the creative capacity of their people. Oh, I totally agree. And I love the fact that you called it the fountain of youth because that's definitely getting going to get much more attention and people will remember us. And I totally agree because if people stop innovating, like Sun Microsystems, they go down under, right? It used to be the one of the biggest companies that dot in the dot com. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a great example. I mean, history is littered with them, right? You look at Blockbuster. At one point, they were opening a new store, I think something like every 17 hours. Yeah. And they refuse to invest in this little startup called Netflix, right? And you can <laughs> yeah. look at Circuit City, you can look at Kodak, you can look at JCPenney, on and on and on. And the list goes of, of legendary organizations that failed to innovate and thus cease to exist. Totally, totally agree. So it's so important, more important than ever to get creative at this point of time and be innovative and not just stop at one innovation, keep on innovating, right? Yes. So I have a question for you. How are great ideas created and what role does mental wellness play 
in someone creating a great idea versus just a good idea. Mm, okay, so I would say to answer the first part of your question, let's put it in two parts. And how are great ideas created? Our uh, experience and the research suggests that the most reliable way to have a good idea is to have a lot of ideas. So rather than trying to come up with a good idea, you should try to come up with more ideas, very simply. My favorite definition of creativity is what I heard a seventh grader in Ohio say once. She said, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. And I think it's a very, very good definition. And for a lot of people, there's a tendency, it's called satisficing, it's called the Einstein effect. There's a tendency to want to move on. The moment you think of a solution that's good enough, you move on and you cease to look for better solutions and you actually become blinded to better solutions because you think you've already solved the problem. And so that idea of just doing more than you think is actually, it's the simplest way to describe the path to a great idea. It's keep looking. The way great ideas happen is by the continuous search and the continuous idea generation process. And then the second part of your question, what role does mental health play? I mean, I can say from personal experience, when I am, uh, you know, experiencing um, distractions or discouragement or sadness or, you know, loneliness or all sorts of things that can affect my mental health, when my mental health isn't good, my creativity follows. It's a reflection of my mental health. It's not to say that great art and great creativity can't come from a place of great feeling, not at all. But it is to say that mental health is essential to the creative act because you have to have your you have to have your mental faculties to create creativity happens in the mind actually and i you know it gets down to this question of what's an idea uh-huh. fundamentally what's an idea it's very simply a connection between two things you already know that's it our brains don't create something from nothing they create something from component parts and mental health one way of saying it is it's the ability to access the various component parts at your disposal The more healthy you are, the more component parts or Lego blocks, you could almost picture them, that you have to be able to connect. The less mentally healthy you are, the less uh, Lego blocks are available to you and the less facile you are at trying on new connections. That's so true, because if someone is mentally well, they feel more confident and are more prone to share their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. If someone is not mentally well, then they feel so self-conscious that they just keep it inside their head and then they and the idea never makes it to the daylight, right? That's exactly right. So you mentioned that focus on quantity, right? So why yes. focus on quantity? Because most of the time in school, in work, everyone says focus on the quality, right? Yeah, yeah. How does quantity matter over focus on quality? Well, so there's some fascinating research that was conducted by our colleague Bob Sutton at Stanford University. And there's other research I can reference later if you'd like, but Basically, the, the truth is it takes a lot of ideas to have a good idea. That's what Linus Pauling said, the only individual to win the Nobel Prize twice, right? The chemist. Yeah. He said, to have a good idea, you need to have a lot of ideas. But the question then comes, well, what's a lot? How many is a lot? Mm-hmm. And when I ask most people that, something like, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 ideas is how many it takes to have a good idea. But if you define good as commercially successful, you know, most of us in business are trying to achieve a commercial success. The number is more like 2000, actually, meaning you need 2000 ideas to get to the point where you have it's likely that there's a commercially successful idea in there. 
And that's really staggering to most people. Most people are thinking in terms of, you know, 50, 60, whatever. And so they're multiple orders of magnitude off. And so, the, you know, there's a famous study conducted by a gentleman named Dr. Dean Keith Simonton. He recently won a Lifetime Achievement Award from Mensa, the organization that awards IQ. Okay, so he's clearly a brilliant researcher. And one of his discoveries as he looked across uh, professions, not just the arts, but also science and invention and engineering, his discovery was that the most creative or the most successful practitioners of various fields were the most prolific. And the times where they had their best contributions to their field, again, whether it's art or science, is when they had their most contributions. Interestingly, by the way, that time period is also when they had their worst contributions. So it's not just that you're getting only good ideas, far from it, you're actually coming up with more bad ideas too. And that's one thing that I think is worth mentioning. If you think about ideas, you can think about them like a natural phenomenon, just like height or whatever it is, right? And if you plot natural phenomenon on a distribution, you get a bell curve, right? You get a normal distribution. Ideas, generally speaking, the quality of one's ideas fall on a bell curve meaning you have a lot that are pretty average you have a few that are really brilliant and then you have a few that are that are pretty silly yeah. and what most people try to do is they try to get rid of silly ideas they don't want any silly ideas and what they don't realize is silly ideas are the way you get to good ideas it's not that good ideas are necessarily come from silly ideas but they come from the variability that a mind that's willing to have and share a silly idea is able to engage and the variability is key one of my favorite stories about this uh, it comes from sir johnny ive who was speaking about his collaboration with steve jobs and he said every day we'd have lunch together and every day steve would say hey johnny want to hear a dopey idea and he said most of the time the ideas were pretty dopey in fact sometimes they were truly terrible but every once in a while they would take the air out of the room because they'd be so tremendous, right? And the point there is Steve Jobs knew what very few of us do, which is if you wanna get delightful ideas, you gotta have dopey ideas, right? Nobody ever thinks of Steve Jobs and thinks that guy's dope. You know, we don't think that, you know, dopey. We think of customer delight and disrupting industries and redefining categories, but to get to delight, you've gotta be willing to be dopey. And that's so critical. Again, this idea of it's not about quality. It's not an orientation towards quality. It's an orientation to be willing to every day have and share bad ideas. And if you're the kind of person who every day has and shares bad ideas, you dramatically increase your likelihood of being the kind of person who stumbles across a great idea. Nice. That's amazing. Yeah, and totally I agree with you because... Uh, there is a famous, I think, uh, quote from Einstein when he was asked, like, why did he still keep on trying to make the light bulb after I failed so many thousand times? Because he said that, uh, because I figured out how many ways not to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. great. I love that. Yeah, I think it was 4,000, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> but he never gave up because he knew it's going to work. And, and uh, these are the things he got out of the way. So that's uh, really, really mm-hmm. cool great way and i totally agree with you about that steve jobs thing because who doesn't know him and who doesn't admire him for his creativity and his innovativeness right that's right that's right and that makes apple the trillion dollar company it is today that's right no it all it all traces back to that that spirit of you know one thing sir johnny i've said is that steve had a remarkable reverence for the creative process yeah 
And that's what a lot of people don't really appreciate that, that, that ideas are fragile to begin with. They're easy to snuff out. They're easy to kill. And when you're, when you're trying to do new things, you've got to be really careful not to, not to kill them too early. That's so true because you never know what it will transform into. Mm-hmm. And I can give you even example of happiness factors. When I started, that time there weren't the headspace and all calm and all that famous. And so people used to say, who is going to pay for happiness? And now they say, oh, it's going to be a $3 trillion industry by 2030. So you are at the right place right now. Wow. wow, that's great. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. But, but I guess because that time people weren't used to it. And now after COVID, everyone is thinking about it. Mm, that's right. So can you elaborate on every problem is an idea problem? Ah, yes. Okay. So here I would first delineate between a task and a problem, right? A task is something you know how to do. It's just a matter of putting in the effort. It's a matter of execution. A problem is something that you don't know the answer to. Yeah. So that's how I define problem. I don't know what the solution is. Okay. If you know the solution, by all means, just do it. Right. But a problem that for which I do not have a solution. When we say every problem is an idea problem, what we mean is that fundamentally the challenge is recognizing when I have a problem, the answer is not a idea, but lots of ideas. Mm-hmm. And if you see that anytime there's a problem, my sol- the, the way to the solution is actually lots of ideas. We call that an idea problem. You realize, oh, I need to generate a lot of ideas here. Yeah. And in that sense, every problem is an idea problem. But here's the interesting thing. Many tasks actually are problems. We assume that we know how to do them. We assume that we know how to execute them, but we, we, we often implement bad solutions. And we do so because we don't realize that we could implement way better solutions. Actually, if we only ask ourselves a simple question, is there a better way to do this? And most people are satisfied with the way they've already thought of rather than thinking of, is there a better way? Yes. That's a very good idea to always ask, is there a better way? And that way people can keep on fine tuning it till it becomes the most excellent version it can possibly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example of uh, this idea problem? Because I think viewers might want to know more if they don't get the clarity from Well, well, I'll give you an example from my own life. This happened just the other day. I was running errands for my family Mm -hmm. and I had my car filled with boxes. I was supposed to take two um, to to another location. And in the front seat, I had unwisely stacked a very heavy box. Mm -hmm. And every time I turned my car, that box would fall onto my shoulder and it was hurting. Okay. And so, and I knew I had to be in the car for about an hour and I had a lot of turns. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of put my elbow up on the box and every time I turned, it would kind of push and I'd say, ah, you know, but I just, my thought was, um, hopefully I won't injure myself, but it's only an hour, right? Well, then my little brother called, he is a uh, construction, he's in home construction in Texas. And he called me and we're talking for a few minutes. And he said at one point, um, why do you keep grunting? <laughs> and I said, well, sorry, I've got this box that keeps yeah. you know, pushing on my shoulder and it hurts. And he said something very profound. He said, have you tried buckling it in with the seatbelt? Wow. <laughs> and I realized in that moment, oh my goodness, I didn't realize 
I didn't think of any other ways to do this. Yeah. You know, if I had, and, and the thing is, there's a whole chapter in my own book about seeking other perspectives to solve a problem, right? If I had even framed it as a problem, so to speak, I would have, I mean, he is, he said, I buckle stuff into my car all the time whenever I'm driving because, you know, otherwise stuff rolls around, right? He's a construction worker. He's constantly putting things in his car. If I could ever ask anybody for a solution, it's probably him. My challenge was I didn't even realize I had an idea problem on my hands, right? And it's almost when you become aware, oh, you know what I need? I need more solutions. Then you start to, you, you're able to draw on certain tools, collaborators, experiments, brainstorming, other inspiration, right? All of a sudden, there's lots of levers at your disposal, but they're only at the disposal of someone who thinks they're solving a problem. If you don't think you're, and in that moment, you know, if I'm just using this as like a self-deprecating story. In that moment, I wasn't thinking I was solving a problem. I was just enduring some difficulty. And if you if you frame the difficulties as problems to be solved and as idea problems, all of a sudden there's lots of possibilities. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm glad you gave a simple example because it's easy for everyone to understand. And sometimes it does, unless someone else mentions it, we don't see the obvious because we are so much in the middle of whatever's going on, right? Yeah, so yeah, it's so to, true. Yeah, and it's trying so to multitask a thousand things and that's why we don't see the obvious. Yeah. This is amazing, very, very good example. So my next question is related to idea, but also related to mental wellness. So, so many, I mean, I heard like uh, almost like 80% uh, of uh, American people experience mental issues in their lifetime, which is a mm. very huge number, it right? Is. And uh, so is mental wellness an idea problem or is it a lifestyle problem? Interesting. I, I don't want to speak outside of my expertise too much here because I'm not, you know, a doctor or, or I'm not a mental health expert. Um, that being said, I would say that I, I teach a class called transformative design here at Stanford. Yeah. And one of the things that we do is we help people solve problems in their life. And a lot of times with persistent challenges, often it's a, the, the problem is how someone has framed a challenge that they're facing. So for example, a woman might say, I need a husband. And she's going on lots of dates. You know, this actually was, a, this is a real case in our class. This woman said, I can't find a good guy. And, and she's constantly frustrated by that. She can't find a good guy. And we just ask her a simple question. What would it do for you if you had a good guy? Yeah. And do you know what she said? I'd have companionship. And we said, oh, well, <laughs> the problem that you need to solve is how can I have companionship in my life? And then if you think about it, a good guy is one of a thousand solutions. You know, yes. you could get a dog. A dog would give you companionship, right? You could have a pen pal. A pen pal would give you companionship. You could, you could join a club, right? There are lots of ways to have companionship. But in her mind, she had decided that her problem was, I need a good guy. Oh, and, I feel my, and again, my just answering your question about mental health, I feel like a lot of the things that I see students get hung up on are the, the challenge actually is that they framed the problem so narrowly. They've gotten fixated on a particular solution. And if they would instead ask themselves, what would the solution I'm so fixated on do for me? They're able to frame a problem that there's actually lots of ways to solve it other than the one solution they're, that they're so fixated 
Yeah, I totally agree with that because, uh, uh, like you said, even like if she has a friend, she that would be a companion or, or a sibling or anyone, right? So yeah, so if we, I guess, give a broader perspective to any problem, then we can handle mental issues before they become big and also handle them much more effectively, right? That's Having right. That yeah, that's right. That's right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, that's great. That's that's more like a. I sounded more like a coaching, but you explained it so, so well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I feel that mental wellness also depends on uh, how you perceive things. Same things can be perceived differently by different people, right? Mm. Like in this case, one person might would have thought, "Oh, I'm having." It's so exciting that I'm going to go out um, to explore what I really want in life in a like a husband or companion or whatever, right? Right, and right. look at it positively and enjoy the process whereas in someone else like they will say oh I've gone on so many dates and can't really seem to find someone because that's an right. Yeah. right so always yeah like, everything I mean it can you know your mindset actually affects so much and you can have a victim mentality right I have to do the dishes yeah you know but if you think about it there's doing the dishes isn't objectively a bad thing you know it's kind of yeah. you, can, you can be in warm water and get soapy it can be fun. Yeah. you can Listen to a podcast, have a conversation with your partner, right? There's actually, the dishes aren't a bad thing. So much of it is our attitude towards the task. That's so true. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think Shakespeare had said, nothing is good or bad, me lot. Only thinking makes it so. Mm, mm, right? nice. because, nice. because things are as they are. It's our perception of the things which make it either bad or good or whatever we want yeah. to. You know, what's interesting is I would even say not to be too philosophical here, but there's no such thing as a bad idea. And what I mean by that is there's a there's a researcher named Edward de Bono. He wrote a book called The Six Thinking Hats and Lateral Thinking. And his belief is that the value of an idea is actually what it does to your thinking, Uh how it affects the next idea. And if you so if you say, okay, like, um, Pineapple jumpsuit. I'm just made that up, right? Is that a bad idea? Well, if if we're thinking in terms of the commercial prospects of it, maybe it's a bad idea. But if pineapple jumpsuit makes you think of something Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have thought of before, it's a good idea in the sense that it served the purpose of provoking your thinking in an unexpected direction, right? So what's a bad idea? Well, it depends on how you define bad. But if your goal is searching for unexpected provocations to affect your thinking in unexpected ways, then sometimes the quote unquote bad ideas are actually really, you know, we do an activity um, at the D school. It's an improv activity uh, borrowed from improvisational theater. That's really fun where you get people to say, okay, you're going to, you're going to share a gift with a person in just a second. So get a gift, something in your desk. You can do this on a, on your next zoom call if you want. It's really fun, but you see, find something that could be a gift anything on your person and then you're going to give it to your partner and what you're going to do is your partner has to say oh good and then say why it's the perfect thing for for you to give them right so i might say hey anita here is um here's my used iphone what would you say oh good that's the perfect thing because i just lost my phone yesterday (laughs) okay yeah Okay, good. So, so, so you, so you can kind of see how. Oh, I can make some. I can make yeah. a gift a good gift, even if I yeah. wasn't thinking I wanted a phone, yeah. right? But yeah. then the second part of the activity is find something that's neutral or bad, not yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
and give it a gift to your partner and then they have to say, oh good, and say why it's the perfect thing they want. So I'll do it again. Anita, I've got this used um, plastic water cup. Well, thank you. Oh, good. It's, I was just looking for it because ever since I injured my wrist, my physical therapist told me to get a plastic cup and freeze water in that and then massage it with that. Wow. Okay. So which was the more creative response, right? Was yeah. it your response? I've need, I lost my phone. Or was it, I need to ice my wrist? I think that was actually the more interesting response, right? Yes. And so, which is to say, but which was the worst idea that you were given? Was it the iPhone? That's a pretty good idea. Yes. Or was it like the piece of trash? The piece of trash is the worst idea and yet yes. it produced a better response for you, right? Yes. Which is to say, there's no such thing as a bad idea. What's a bad idea? It's all just like the Shakespeare line you quoted a moment yes. ago. Mm -hmm. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And if my beholding is, if my desire is to allow myself to be sparked, we've been calling it being sparkable at the D school lately. If my desire is to be sparkable, <laughs> then then anything good, good or bad could spark a new idea. Yes, totally. We just have to be the open mindset and non-judgmental, right? Yes. That's amazing. I'm really enjoying our conversation. Yes, likewise, of course, thank you. So what's the best way to then generate free flow of ideas, especially in the corporate world, because people are running like from one meeting to another, from one deadline to another, like, and some of the companies I've worked for uh, in manufacturing field or even in software, like people are working like 12 hour, 14 hour, 16 hour days, right? So yeah. how do they then generate the ideas? Well, th there's the question of how do you do it individually and how do you do it as a team? And I would say, one thing that's very important is if you want to be successful in the context of a team, you should attend to your personal practice. Okay. And so one of the things that we advocate is having a simple personal practice. We call it a daily idea quota, uh -huh. whereby every single day you choose a problem for which you are looking for the right answer, right? Which is basically any problem you're trying to solve, you're looking for the right answer. And it can be anything, it can be related to your work, it can be related to your life, anything. And sometime in the morning, you know, over coffee even, if you will say, okay, I've been thinking of trying to find the right answer. I'm gonna change my goal. My goal is to have at least 10 possible answers. Not good answers, not, yeah. not great answers, but any answer it can be ridiculous, can be illegal, can be silly, can be gibberish, right? Just 10 possible answers. If you will do that every day and it takes three minutes, it doesn't take a long time, not at all. I don't, when people say I don't have time, that's totally false because it's it's really just about having a, a little intention to yeah. flex this muscle of not judging, right? And if you start practicing flexing that muscle of not judging just with yourself, you start to realize you get better ideas. You, you do get better ideas, but it comes from generating more ideas. And if you do that every day, it's just like exercise, just like lifting a, a weight or something. You'll be stronger when it comes time to be in a team setting because you will have practiced the muscle of non-judgment. And when you practice the muscle of non-judgment with yourself, two things happen when you're in the context of a group. One, you're more free to say things that you might not have said otherwise because you realize nothing bad happened. And two, you're way more permissive to other people to say silly things that they might not have otherwise said. 
both of which are phenomenally useful for a group moment. So to me, when you say, how do you make time? One, I don't think you need much time. It just requires a little bit of attention. People do breathing exercises. People do physical exercises. My belief is that your creativity is a muscle that can be exercised just like any other capacity. Like if you want to play the piano, what do you do? You do your scales, you know? If you want to be a swimmer, what do you do? You do laps in the pool. If you want to be creative, what do you do? The simplest thing, going back to the simple definition of creativity, doing more than the first thing you think of, is having a daily habit of pushing yourself to generate more than the first thing you thought of. Very simple. That's amazing. So for example, suppose like someone makes tea every morning, right? Yes, perfect. That's the first idea. So if or while are... or while the tea is steeping, you know, you know the tea is only going to steep for three or four minutes, depending on how yeah. bitter you like your tea, right? Yeah. Okay, and then just think of what's something that what's a problem I'm trying to solve right now. Mm-hmm. So for you, what's a problem you're trying to solve right now in your life? For me? Yeah. Look, for me, uh, the problem I'm trying to solve in my life is generating enough cash flow for my startup. Okay. So generating enough cash flow for your so how can I generate cash flow for my startup? So let's set a timer for one minute right now. Let's do it. Okay, how are what are ways that you what's the obvious way to generate cash flow for your startup? To get investor funding. Okay, get investor funding. What's the most opposite way of that? Uh, to uh, do enough marketing to generate enough revenues. Okay, so marketing. What what would um, what would Oprah do? What would Oprah do? She would, uh, I would say, create enough PR. <laughs> okay, so she create PR. Okay, yeah. what would your what, um, what was that? Manifest. Yeah, manifest it. That's great. Yeah, yeah, of course. What would um what would your neighbor do? Uh, my neighbor would go and uh, talk to people who need the services. Talk to, oh, say, okay, so talk to customers. Okay. What if you called all of your customers and asked them to buy one more thing? Or what if you called all of your customers and asked them to make one introduction to another person? Or what if you talked to your, um, to your office mates about how to make your company bigger? Yeah, that would be okay. So that was, that was one minute. You and I just came up with seven or eight ideas, right? In, in one minute. Wow, so the point is, and, and imagine, by the way, I mean, then that's kind of a challenge for you where you're, you're thinking about it often, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if you did that every day for a week or two, right? Yeah. You would have explored and you start at the bottom of the list every time and say, now let's, I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to try to push far beyond, right? What yeah. most people do is they give up way too early and they go, well, you know, the second idea was my favorite idea since, uh, you know, all the way back to the third idea. So I'm just going to go with my second idea. Rather than just allowing ourselves to push and to push, and there, it's known as the creative cliff illusion, which is to say there's this that people hold a belief that they're if you plot creativity over time, their expectation is that it's going to degrade over time, mm-hmm. that it will it will fall off a precipitous cliff at some point. But what the research suggests is that's not true. It's not true that our creativity degrades over time. And in fact, our creativity can actually ramp up. It can increase. It can become more creative. And do you know the biggest indicator of whether our creativity increases or decreases? <laughs> it's whether we expect it to increase. Uh, oh, whether we expect it to increase or decrease. Okay, so not on the output, but most, or more on our thought process. <laughs> when do you expect good ideas to come? If you expect them to come early, you have worse ideas altogether. 
If you expect good ideas to come later, you have more and better ideas overall. So I totally agree. Even when I started my startup, I was trying to do something which would have been similar to a Headspace or Calm. Mm-hmm. And then I took the feedback and uh, we pivoted so much. We made it a gamified, including AI, <laughs> including AR. And it was all because wow. of all the later ideas which came. Mm-hmm. Because people were not finding it useful enough, even though companies were buying it. Yeah. So we had yeah. to make it interesting enough for people to use it and use it yeah. often. It's <laughs> a great example. It's a great example. Yeah, no, so I totally agree with you because I think any idea in the initial phase is not refined enough. So it needs to refine over time and uh, mm. make, make up a few pivots if necessary. Absolutely. Always necessary. Yes. I've, as we say, we've never seen an idea survive contact with the customer. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> it always changes. Yes, because cu- customer always gives feedback. And I got this advice very early on at, with John Chambers. I have went to attend one of his uh, talks and... Uh, I asked him, oh, should I include all those features first, right? He said, just build the simplest product and the customers will tell you what features they need. Mm, mm, that's great. And that saved me lots of time and money. That's great. No, it's very, very wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And that's why I think uh, the mentors always help you avoid the potholes. That's great. It's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. So now let's talk a little bit about your book, Idea Flow. So can you elaborate how this book helped solve the problem uh, of the people who are solving the problems for good? What do you mean by solving problems for good? Solving problems for good, uh, for the good of the humanity. Oh, oh yeah. I think if you're, there's a, there's a quote there, I think in the early chapters, we say, solve the problem of solving problems for good. What we mean is once you learn a technique to generate a volume of solutions and to rapidly test them, solving problems is no longer a problem. So you've effectively solved the problem of solving problems for good, so, meaning permanently. So not for social good necessarily, but permanently. But absolutely, as it pertains social good, um, it's societal ills are every bit as much idea problems as mental health issues are idea problems as every other problem is. And so um, definitely the way to do good in the world is to generate options and craft scrappy experiments. That's one thing that we haven't talked a lot about yet, and perhaps we should, but once you generate a lot of ideas, what, what do you do? And what we'd say is run scrappy, simple, cheap experiments, like what John Chambers said to you, right? Mm-hmm. Put it in front of a customer and see what they say. No problem. And what we've observed is most people want to make sure that their ideas are way too polished before they share them with anyone. Yeah. And all that means is you're investing more time in it. You're spending more time. Time is money. You know, time is an expense. And if you say, oh, I'm going to wait till it's a little bit more perfect, till I've got it a little bit better yeah. to share it, then you're basically saying, I want it to be a little bit more expensive before I share it. Yeah. And when you recognize that your that your goal is actually cheap learning, then you start to share much more often, knowing that that actually that sharing actually accelerates learning. Yeah, that's so important, and I totally agree with you. I think if more startups use their those words of wisdom, then not that many of them would fail within the first two years. Mm, yeah. Because sometimes we try to perfect so much, and then or, we run out of resources. Or to say it differently, perhaps they would fail much earlier and still have capital to do something that works. That's so true, yes. 
And I think that's fine. Like failing is fine, actually. You know, it's lots of things we try don't work. Mm -hmm. The question is, do you use all of your resources to learn that what you were going to do doesn't work? Or do you learn that while you still have resources left? And the thing that doesn't work for people is to spend all of their resources learning the one thing that they thought would work doesn't work. But if you can spend a fraction of your resources and learn that, then you still have the majority of your resources to be on to the next thing and the next thing. Totally agree with that. And that's, I think that's the words of wisdom which everyone can use once they understand mm. that and they won't, uh, and they always have then some resources left to go on to the next idea or the next project which they would like to do. That's right, exactly. And what mindset and myths you think that become a roadblock to idea generation or creativity? What mindsets or myths are a block? Well, one of the big blocks is, we referenced it earlier, but just to just to describe it a bit more, it's called the Einstelling effect. And I like to refer to this as the anti-Einstein effect because it keeps us from our inner genius. And what the Einstelling effect is, uh, is established by Abraham Luchens in 1942, subsequently validated by Carl Dunker, and then more recently by researchers at Oxford. But they, what they basically all demonstrated is that both for beginners and experts so it's something that plagues both parties yeah. um when a problem solver identifies the solution two things happen one they stop looking for other solutions yeah. and two they become blind to better solutions even if they say they're looking for more they aren't able to see them and so the Einstelling effect is something that, that has profound impact on our creativity because if being creative is doing more than the first thing you think of, and the Einstelling effect is that once you think of something, you stop looking, then it has a profound impact, right? The other that I think it's related, but just to describe it in different terms is what's known as the pursuit of cognitive closure, which Ari Kruglowski was a, a, a psychologist who identified this, that the uh, ambiguity is distressing to human beings. Something not being resolved is distressing. And it may be a part of the explanation for the Einstein effect that if we keep saying we don't know, it's deeply distressing. So what we do is we prematurely close on an idea because it's, it's comforting to us to call it done. It's more comforting to call it done than to actually keep working on it. So the Einstein effect says you just you just you stop looking and cognitive closure describes why you stop looking. I think those two things taken together really show one of the key barriers to creativity and to recognize that one of the ways to short circuit those things is just to change your goal and to orient around quantity rather than quality. Both of those cognitive biases really, um, really fall victim to a focus on quality. Because it's whenever you have a good enough idea, the Einstein effect sets in. So whenever you have a good enough idea that you're willing to engage, to, to yield to the desire for cognitive closure. But if your goal is around volume yeah. and quantity, then you change the basis by which you declare victory, which is really important. Totally agree. And also, it, I guess, helps people discover all the different aspects of the solution rather than just one probable solution. and that gives them more wholesome view and more success long term mm. rather than a small short term success, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So for the layman who doesn't think that 
many can innovate like even i will say like most of the education system says oh you can learn this when you are certain age or you can't learn this if you are not a certain age uh, so how would you convince them that creativity can be learned at any age no matter well, what what stage of life they are in well i mean i would reverse the question and say <clears throat> i think almost everyone thought of themselves as creative once upon a time yes at least in the united states i don't know what it's like in india but in the united states most research suggests that somewhere around third or fourth grade yes the proportion of students in a classroom who say they're creative drops dramatically so yes. in third grade they call it at something like 80% are creative yes. in fourth grade it's something like 20% are creative right yes. well what changed are they different No, but they start to certain kinds of ways of thinking and rule following and things like that become valued and become enforced and become kind of there's a socialization there. And so, I think if you go back far enough, all of us there was a time where we were creative, we're making novel connections and and that's that's the heart of creativity. And so the challenge isn't can I learn it, but can I unlearn uncreativity? Maybe to say it differently. Mm-hmm. and or can i rediscover that which i once possessed mm-hmm. that which i once had and can i grow in my confidence and our strong belief of the d school you know david kelly and his brother tom wrote a wonderful book called creative confidence which is all about reinstilling that create that sense of creative spark that creative passion and the d school is predicated on that belief that all that creativity is an inherent human capacity and yes. all of us can nurture it and can grow it um and it's not something that's reserved for the elite few it's for everyone um but you do have to believe that you can reinvigorate your creative spark yes. and it does require attention just like any other skill or ability requires attention no i totally agree with that and i was listening to a talk about uh, silva methods and they say that till 4 years uh, of age like the kids are so creative they can pretty much like uh, figure out anything or create anything or make up anything but after that they go more into the beta state of mind and like the rules and regulations and everything else you were mentioning and so years of conditioning help not helps uh, help them not become that creative anymore because they are living in the just day to day life instead of uh, focusing deep into their creativity right it's become dormant it's a muscle that hasn't been used yes So I guess people in their thirties, forties, or fifties sometimes they think they can't be creative because they have lost that touch so long ago. But I'm glad and, that you know, I would say don't don't yeah. overly associate it with art. You know, some people think I can't draw, therefore I'm not creative. <laughs> Artistic expression is one of many forms of creativity. Yes. You know, and for someone to think I can't draw, therefore I'm not creative, is a gross misunderstanding of creativity. If you can think of more than one way to do something, you're creative, right? Mm-hmm. um and and so redefining creativity i think is equally important that's why i like that seventh grader from ohio's definition so much you know arthur gesler the uh, hungarian philosopher defined creativity in the following way he said creativity is the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference so when oh, different that. parts of your life or your world collide in unexpected ways that's when creativity takes place i totally agree because if that hadn't happened in my life there won't be any happiness factors <laughs> tell the story of that what do you mean if that hadn't happened in your life so i would say like most of the people who indian people who migrate here i was uh, working for a tech company had a good high paying job uh, 
uh, I had come with my ex and if he hadn't turned abusive and tried to kill me I don't think I would have ever have realized the importance of mental wellness and when mm. I went to the doctors here they were trying to prescribe me antidepressants which I think in my situation it, if I had taken that I would not be even alive today so it was good I wow. refused that and wow. decided to start every day with a workout like a kickboxing or a zumba or something because of the endorphins it get, gets into your system and uh, I also I don't like taking medication <laughs> that's another thing and I went yeah. into self development learn neuro linguistic programming uh, hypnotherapy energy healing and of course I have a background in yoga meditation but I went much more deep into that I learned with Deepak Chopra Oprah Winfrey Tony Robbins uh, Dr. Matt James, uh, then um, Landmark, you, you name it, I would have done that course, right? Just to heal the pain I was in. Wow. wow. And over the years, I realized that not just I don't have PTSD, but I'm so happy and I can like pretty much create whatever I want, right? From someone who that time, like people who saw me, they used to, I wouldn't even look them in the eyes. Like I would, uh, I would like jump out of my skin <laughs> if someone like you, you as much as said hello to me. And that really? uh, that really? Really? lack of confidence and mm-hmm. when I left and I left with just a few clothes and I didn't know what to do I didn't have a job I didn't have confidence and that's very character building when you don't have any support system and you're in a foreign country you don't have any family anyone to support you right so learning to gain that I would say strength within myself the courage within myself and healing myself till uh, I reached a place where I realized that someone else's actions wasn't my responsibility. And uh, and that's when I decided if I was mentally well, no one could have taken advantage of me that much. And But good thing about the healing, the good side effect, I would say, of not taking medication and healing uh, with the holistic means was that it made me creative enough to file a technology patent and I'm not a technologist. <laughs> Wow. And wow. create the company and I have won several awards, Woman of Influence. This year I won the Woman of Inspiration. I wrote a best-selling book called Find Your Happy, Survivor's Guide to Finding Joy in Spite of Life's Challenges. And wow. I have uh, like a few more patents pending as well as going for fun- funding. And now, I mean, right now I feel that sky's the limit. I can pretty much uh, do anything I want and achieve it. So I would say that that was a very, if life had fallen into place like my brother's sisters or everyone else who has the same life, like got married into a nice family, have kids, have houses, have normal life, I wouldn't become this, uh, I would say I need to be this version of myself. And I wouldn't be able to inspire so many other women who are in similar situations or other people and not and uh, not even like have my own startup. So I would say like it was those surprising elements of my life which made me not just grow up but also gave me more compassion and kindness and uh, I would say understanding of uh, things uh, not just about mental wellness but of course about others and uh, yeah. uh, try to give back to community also as much as I can. <laughs> What, a, what an inspiring story. Thank you for taking the time to share it. I mean, talk about, that's a definition of an of an apparently unrelated frame of reference, right? The collision that you experienced was yes. a profound one, but as you said, it resulted in an incredibly creative outcome. And so I'm I'm grateful to get to get to know your story and to hopefully your listeners already know this, but if they don't, I'm sure that was a huge gift for them. No, thank you. No, I have talked about it in different stages after I healed. Before I healed, I wasn't ready because I used to feel ashamed of it but then I realized people told me okay so many people will get inspiration when they don't see hope and that's when I started sharing and I have had a few 
I would say I have been mentioned in a few news channels as well as some other uh, TV channels as well for my story. Once mm. I decided to come out of it, and right now, uh, and right now, I would say like healing and giving yourself time to heal and learn. I would say, and also like I would say like that was a creative process, right? Because I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have any even a support system here, let alone anything else. But just like uh, I would say, like getting creative enough to survive and then thrive, and and that was the whole process of it. And, wow. and the quote you said just before that brought to, uh, to my mind. Right now. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. So I have a couple more questions. I hope you have time for that. Yeah, I, I've got. I need to wrap uh, shortly. But... Yes. So I'm. We almost at the end. Just um, so, what is the uh, idea that stimulates creativity. What would you say? And I have my next question. Maybe I should can ask both together. And what's the correlation between mental wellness and and hybrid teams and creativity? Because nowadays most teams are working hybrid, right? And yeah. then, and I have given a few talks in women in tech where they say like it's so difficult to manage the kids who are home and themselves and work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things, and I think they're actually, they are related. Um, stimulating creativity, it's all about input. You know, if you think about creativity as output, then you're mistaken, right? Creativity is actually a function of input. Mm -hmm. And so the, this, the extent to which you are cultivating and seeking new inputs really drives creativity. And then as the, the intersection there with hybrid work is, you know, if you and I were both If you and I were both um, in a conference room or something, if we look to our right, we're both looking at this board. You know, we look to the left, we're both looking at that wall, we have, which is to say we have the same input. But right now, you look to the right and I look to the right, we see two totally left. different things. Left. You look to the left, I look to the left, <laughs> and which is to say the, the collective inputs available to us in a hybrid environment are actually more. If you and I both said, let's turn off our video for a minute and we take a five minute walk around our block and then come back, we're going to take different walks, right? And so there's a way to, if, if creativity is a function of input, hybrid dramatically increases the variability of inputs available to a team. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's, it's an untapped resource because we're all, you know, on Zoom and we're all, you know, responding to email or Slack messages or whatever it is, we're kind of realizing only a fraction of the available potential of hybrid work to really unleash creativity. Nice, what are some of the ending thoughts you would like to give to the listeners? Um, that creativity is a craft that you can grow with practice. Don't think about it like an event. Think about it as a craft that you can grow in. And, you know, breakthrough thinkers, the thing that's different about breakthrough thinkers is how they think. And how they think is a learnable skill. We have actually put a free resource on our website, ideaflow.design. Anybody can go to ideaflow.design. And if you do, there's a free bonus chapter to the book called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. Mm -hmm. And there we distill seven key traits that those two breakthrough thinkers shared in terms of how they thought about problems. And so anyone who's listening here, we made it available for free for listeners of this podcast. Go there, download the free ebook. And the goal is, to practice different ways of thinking. This is a learnable skill, and we are eager for many people to be more effective in their work and life because they've learned it and practiced it with us. Thank you. 
thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been so enlightening and such a nice and interesting conversation. And I'm sure my the, the viewers also learned a lot from us. And uh, till next time, keep smiling.